0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest on today's show is Dr. Heather Thompson Day. Uh, Heather is associate professor of communication and rhetoric at Colorado Christian University. She has an MA and a PhD um, from Andrews University. She's the author of several books, including Confessions of a Christian Wife and How to Read the Mediavore, uh, and her yet to be released book. Um, It's Not Your Turn, which is the book that we talk about uh, kind of throughout this podcast. This podcast was really hard to find a title for because Heather and I just had kind of a free-flowing conversation about all kinds of things, including um, communication and rhetoric and teaching and uh, her book, uh, It's Not Your Turn, which which sounds like a fascinating book. Um, We talk about uh, the church. We talk about... Uh, media, we talk about Gen Z and all kinds of stuff. It was just a, a, a kind of a rolling conversation, and it's one of those conversations that just I, I just enjoyed it so much that uh, towards the end I'm like, oh yeah, I'm recording a podcast. You know, one of those kind of conversations. So uh, super excited about it. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Heather is always, always just an interesting, lively, fun, wise person to talk to, and I'm I'm excited for you to listen in on our conversation. If you would like to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com. For- the Algen ra support the show for as little as five bucks a month. All the info is in the show notes, and please, please leave an honest review of this show. Uh, I often forget to mention that, but reviews do help let people know about it. And I do mean honest review. If you believe this is the show is is garbage and worth one star, then please right now. Go leave a one-star review if you think it's three or four stars or maybe even five stars, and please do give an honest review and let people know about the show. And feel free to share it on your social media platforms as well. If you're like, hey, I, I like the show. I can't support you financially, but hey, I would love to tell others about it and leave a review. That actually is a huge help for uh, letting people know about theology in the raw. All right. Let, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Dr. Heather thompson Day. Hey Heather, welcome back to Theology in the Raw. How are you doing?
1: Man, I am so good. Happy to be here.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to jump right in with this uh, tweet you have pinned on your profile. Okay, I've never done this before, like opened up with like a tweet somebody said as a launching pad. But this tweet, uh, it's just like, it's so amazing. So I'm going I'm to read it and I, I want to hear the backstory on this. You said, I had a student once who entered college with a 1.2 GPA. She finished with honors and a full-ride scholarship to her next school. She was the same person she was in high school. Only difference was that in college, for the first time in her life, she had a bed. And that tweet got over 441,000 likes, which is, I mean, the definition of something going viral. Um, can Can you share the backstory on that? I've always wondered, like, man... Who is this person like what what's what want I want to expand on that tweet and hear the whole story about what. Yeah.
1: Happened. So actually, can I tell you when I started my new job at Colorado Christian University, my Dean, when he introduced me to all of the university faculty, he read that tweet. Really? So I feel as though I'm happy when people share that tweet because I feel as though it's very symbolic of how I enter the classroom and how I engage with students. but um, that was from when I was at a community college in Southwest Michigan. And that student was honestly a phenomenal student by the time I had her in college. Apparently, she had entered in on, on a grant system and provisional admit. And then she told me her story. And she, she literally said, I, I have never had a bed until I showed up here in our beautiful dorms. Wow. And she actually, she did a speech to all of our class. And she said, I slept on the floor next to roaches." That's the backdrop by which I entered a college education and I never thought I could even do school, but her life and, and she's the one that made that connection. She said having a bed changed how I saw everything else.
0: That's and then she
1: ended up with a full ride. I think she went to Western Michigan University Wow! after her two years at the community college.
0: You say this is symbolic of how you enter the classroom. Can you can you expand on that? Like, what is that? What yeah.
1: So here's what I've discovered. And I teach communication classes. So I get to have a lot of heart-to-heart conversations in a collective setting. And something I've discovered, and now I'm very mindful of it when I enter the classroom, is yes, we may all be at the exact same place, at the exact same time, at the exact same school, but we have not come from the same places. And I should never assume that my background, which for me, you know, I was raised in a very spiritual, my dad was an evangelist, very loving environment, mm-hmm. wonderful cookie cutter, you know, parents and family. My sister was like, a didn't even bully me. She was like a, this wonderful big sister who adored me. And so that's the backdrop that I enter rooms with, right? Yeah. And. There's people, when we talk about controversial conversations, or let's talk about God, when we talk about how do you see God, there are people that it's very difficult for them to believe that Mm -hmm. there is a loving God because of the life that they've lived. And it's been very helpful for me to just rewind and say, suspend all judgment. I have no idea where this person is coming from. Let me tell you one more story, actually, a student. and, And this really drives it home. I had a student come into class late. And this is when I first started teaching. And back then I used to say things when people came in late, I'd say something, I'd make a joke like, Oh, thanks for joining us. Glad you could fit us in or something like that. And then they'd sit down. He comes in late and I, I was about to make a joke and I didn't. And I, I just, for whatever reason, I felt like I, I shouldn't. So I didn't say anything. He sat down, class goes 90 minutes pass. at the end of class. He comes up to me and he says, Hey, I just want you to know, I'm really sorry. I was late. And I said, Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He he goes, my mom died this morning and I put her in the ambulance, her body, and I didn't know where to go. It's going to make me cry. And he, he said, I didn't know where to go. And so I came here. And so I thought, Oh my God, like, what if I had said, thanks for joining us or made some joke as a teacher, right. To control my room and make sure nobody's falling asleep, whatever. And I'd missed the context by which he was walking into the room, which for him obviously was part of routine, but perhaps even just a safe space where he felt like, I have no idea where to go right now. So let me do it. And I took him to my office and he just sat with me for probably the rest of the day in my office, just sat there. We didn't talk. He just sat. So I have learned as a teacher that just because we end up at the same conference or the same church, right, or whatever, it doesn't mean that we have come from the same spaces.
0: Yeah. Dude, that's so oh my gosh i i i don't know what to say in response to that that's <laughs> i i took a um when I was a professor at cedarville University this is ten twelve years ago uh, a colleague of mine ran a course called an introduction to urban ministry uh professor uh dr Jeff Cook if anybody out there knows that name um and uh this guy was just a real deal he he would lead so as part of the class, you would have to live um, homeless over the weekend, right? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. He would make them dumpster dive, wouldn't give them food. They would have to go beg for money so that they can see the shame of when, you know, sub- suburban soccer moms try not to make eye contact with you when they're going to the gas station, just so you feel just the other side, you know? And I, I remember at the beginning of the class, so I, as a professor, I, I took the class because I was like, all these students, he had this like cult following of students that- mm-hmm. They, they were just like, their world was turned inside out, you know? Um, and I don't know, there's so many stories I can share from that, but the point of bringing that up is I remember in the class, him talking about, you know, people that are raised in sometimes urban or rougher contexts, you know, they, they may show up to school on Monday morning and fall asleep during class. And it's like, you have to ask the question, why? Maybe they're lazy. Um, right. Maybe they were up all night watching movies or maybe their mom's boyfriend was you know physically and sexually abusive and they had to kind of stay up to to stay clear of him so they come in exhausted because their weekend was not like your weekend you know right. um and it's like wow i i gosh you know like i i've just never it's so the so easy to assume that your context is just like everybody else's like you said you know loving family i i grew up in a a loving family divorce but still very loving but like you know like my mom taught me my mom was one of the hardest working humans I know um, still is like work three jobs. When when my, when my parents got divorced, uh, my mom was working three jobs, you know, on my 16th birthday, well, prior to my 16th birthday, um, she took me around to pick up 15 job applications so that I can I can be working the day I turned 16, the, the, the legal age to work in California at that time, you know? Um, and so I, I worked at Burger King, eight hours on my 16th birthday, came home exhausted, wow. went to sleep. And so I, w- so I was raised with this hard work environment. That's not everybody else. Like that, that, that. Maybe somebody else wasn't raised in that environment, so right. I should not expect people to have. Well, just go get it. Just go work hard and, and just go get the job. Well, some people were, were never taught how to go fill right. out a, fill out a fill out an application and give it to the manager, not the you know fifteen year old at the front desk, or whatever. And like, I don't know. It, it's just it throughout life that I, I've learned, tried to learn to not project my context, my background on everybody else. Cause that's just, it's just, um, it's probably why we're so polarized today in society. People just.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. And we should add that context is, they say one of the most powerful factors and motivators in that Princeton study. I'm rereading the tipping point right now. And in the tipping point, he talks about that Princeton study where he has the seminary students and they're supposed to go give some type of sermon And they prime them with three different things that happen before they give the sermon. And then they want them to walk past a person in an alley who is moaning and asking for help as they literally go to preach the Good Samaritan, right? And it's like 60% of the seminary students walk right past the moaning person crying for help in an alley on their way to preach the Good Samaritan. And the only people who stopped were the people who they primed before by saying, hey, you're gonna get there early, you're gonna have an extra few minutes. So if you told somebody you're going to be late, a good hearted, normal Christian, wonderful person walked right past somebody who was in suffering because context matters. I'm late. I can't stop. Yeah. Right. And so I have actually, and to tipping point he says this too, he says "A, a child from a good family in a bad neighborhood will do worse than a child from a bad family in a good neighborhood. The actual neighborhood context matters more. And that is so powerful for me to remember, should I ever get high and mighty and self-righteous and toity about, well, how can somebody not see this? Look at the context by which I enter situations often.
0: Wow. From a place I would say of
1: privilege, just of having a loving home. There's so much about just our parents that we can't control that set us up for the rest of our trajectory.
0: Yeah. So you said you were raised in a loving home, religious home. Socioeconomically, were you like middle class, upper middle class, lower? lower
1: no, we were, we were, we were definitely. I didn't realize we were poor. I don't think. Okay. But you know what? Here's what: like social media wasn't a thing, right? So I don't know if you look at your childhood and it's like I didn't see. All these gorgeous, beautiful other 13 year olds. I saw a lot of people wearing Winnie the Pooh t shirts just like me from Walmart <laughs> in my class. So I never realized looking back, I'm like, oh, we ate waffles for dinner a lot, or we <laughs> ate frozen pizza all the yeah. time, or my mom would get a big pancake mix. We were definitely
0: lower okay. class. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, yeah, look, I, my context was interesting. It was, I was kind of, I was, yeah, I would say lower middle class. It's hard to like quantify that, but we, yeah, we didn't have a lot of money. I remember I had, um, one pair of jeans that didn't have, um, holes in them back when holes and jeans were not cool. Like it showed that right. you're poor white trash. Right. And I had one pair that didn't have holes. Um, and I had one, I had all these obscure, like Kmart off brand shirts, but I had one, Town and country shirt back then, town and country was like the cool brand, you know, and I had one pair of shoes that weren't like um oh I forget the Kmart brand like off, so I had this like I had one outfit that was somewhat decent looking I remember every every day every like once a week I'd wear that to school and I felt I felt like a king, you know but i I was raised so I was raised more like a poor white kid in a largely either poor white or hispanic neighborhood but mm. the elementary school i went to was a complete mix of rich white kids and a, a, a poorer kind of hispanic community but i was a poor white kid in the hispanic community a lot of my friends are the rich white kids so it's this weird mix like i'd always right. cross the tracks so to speak in these made this neighborhood it wasn't that far away but like these huge homes and and that was not my my neighborhood so i but i didn't like you said i didn't even think i don't know it's just that was just Life, I didn't think about it, you know. Like, I don't
1: think it was so obvious the comparison like it is for young people today, yeah because it's in their bedroom. Like you're constantly scrolling past. And and it's, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but like people just are so much more beautiful, younger than yeah. they ever were. I just posted this picture I found of myself in middle school. I had like a giant, I mean, I look horrible, giant a big Tamaguchi hanging from my waist, right? When everybody had those giga pets or whatever, <laughs> just a totally different time. And I was normal in my class. Like yeah. I don't remember Feeling ostracized for the way I look, but I look back and I'm like, wow, this was like these were rough times. Like these were, these were tough days,
0: (laughs) but it was normal. So I think we talked about social media, but last time you're on the podcast, um, I'm curious, you're a communication specialist. Like, what is the impact social media is having and will continue to have on the sociology, psychology of especially. Gen Z that is just, this is all they've known. Like, is it disastrous or is it something we're just going to have to kind of accommodate to or?
1: I think it's both. I think that there's some horrible things. Like we know that it increases our rates of depression and anxiety. Okay. So we have to be aware of that. And young people need to be aware of that and monitor their social media use. I mean, if everybody, everybody watched the social dilemma. Yeah. Right. And was like, And signed out of all their, it was like back in the, in the nineties where you burned all your non-Christian CDs, (laughs) everybody watched the social dilemma and shut down all their social media accounts. We're like, I'm done. Right. Um, I don't think that that's practical just because there's, I mean, I really believe that the gospel should be shared to the ends of the earth and and it's such an incredible way. And you know, this as a writer, like the fact that we can write a post that reaches thousands of people in seconds to me is unbelievable. The honor of having that be a part of my regular life. And so I want to steward that really well. So I think that there's great things. It's changed the power dynamics. So there's this really great book. um, Is it Henry Timms? It's called new power. Have you read it?
0: No, I didn't write that down. It's a
1: really good book. It's called new power. And it's all about how the old power systems of the world have really had to shift because of, grassroots social media type thinking. So essentially the idea is young people today, Generation Z, all believe in this participation model, meaning what are you talking about? So let's use church as a context for us that makes sense. We tell young people to come sit down in our church and be quiet and listen
0: Yeah,
1: and then go home. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I can watch This Is Us and live tweet my thoughts and have like 50 people join me. Everything that they experience is participatory. And their voice always matters. And we train, what do we tell them? You matter. Your voice matters. Don't don't forget your voice, right? And so then in the church, we tell them to sit down and be quiet. (laughs) And so like we see our classrooms have shifted. It used to be rows where you look forward at the teacher. Now you're in little pods where you talk in your group. Hmm. I, it's definitely changes, And I think that there's some really good things
0: in that. Yeah. Do Do you think, so I, I've thought about this uh, a lot in the last few years when it comes to just broader church structures, like in a post internet world, when uh, it's so normal for people to watch something and respond, watch something and respond. And sometimes the responses, you know, the YouTube comments are the most annoying <laughs> thing in the world, but th- that's just that the world people live in is it is dialogical. So does that at least raise the question, should we keep a monological form of church where people come, sit, listen, and there's no avenue of response? Like, I just wonder if we need to explore different forms of teaching that resonates with kind of the the society that everybody's actually living in, you know, because it does seem kind of a little bit like just I don't want to say tone like I I don't want to say, speak too negatively of it. I just wonder right, if, right. like if the question should be raised like we're doing something in church that was formed and worked really well in a pre-internet world when people, you know, back in the 1800s people on a Friday night date night would go listen to a 3-hour speech, you know, like um,
1: Right.
0: Now there's what other form do you not like you said like not respond whether you're live tweeting or commenting or even you can read a news article, and there's always a comment box or something. Like I just wonder if we need more dialogue in in churches, but
1: I mean, I think I think we do. Here's, I read this really great study that said that what changed students' math scores or reading scores was working with a mentor, even if that mentor knew nothing about math or reading. So sitting down with somebody older than you and working out a problem, even if that person had a horrible aptitude for math and reading, still improved the students' math and reading scores. So as a church body... I think we have no choice but to make sure we are really practicing small group discipleship.
0: Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, th- I think youth groups, I, I don't, I'm not a youth expert, but like, it seems like that kind of message break up into small groups Preston! is kind of a
1: so I had a student. Just I had my students for the, the end of the semester in my persuasion class. They had to write um, a seminar that they would either give to church leaders or to Generation Z hmm. on either what they would want to see things change or how they wish their generation would stay in church. Right. Yeah. One of the students said, and this blew my mind. He said, "I." What they do in church is they got me there by having pizza parties and social game nights and youth group. And it was fantastic. And then all of a sudden I grew up and they want me to sit down and there's no more pizza and there's no more socialization and there's no more relationship. (laughs) And I, 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 for some reason, I'd never thought of it that way before that Mm -hmm. the way we get you in isn't at all what you experience as we transition. And then, and (laughs) let's get into, we are the loneliest generation in U.S. history. Yeah. Right, yeah. more baby boomers die of suicide today than car accidents. We are an incredibly wow. lonely culture, and what space should be the place of all connection and relationship? I yeah. believe the gospel and the church, so I think yeah. we have to do something different.
0: Man, that's, but who am I? Yeah, <laughs> no, you. Well, you're you have a PhD in communication, so that's true. <laughs> in as much as communication is part of church, I think you you uh, keep speaking, keep preaching, Heather. Um, yeah, no, I mean, for me personally, I, I feel like. The, uh, this resonates with most people I talk to. Like, it's that sense of belonging, of knowing and being known that is the main draw to church now. Um, I think it used to be, like, powerful sermons and worship, and that might still work for some, but I think the people that are becoming, yeah, lonely, isolated, disenchanted, or de-churched or unchurched, it's, like, it's it's the sense of belonging that is the main draw. I mean, why so... <laughs> So we we live in a high like LDS population, you know. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been to an LDS church service or whatever. They're not the most thrilling um, events, you know. <laughs> like I don't I don't think the L, uh, the LDS church is drawing people because their their services are just so dynamic. And it, it, I think my LDS friends would say they, they they would laugh and say you're totally right. What draws people to the LDS church? This profound sense of belonging. Like goodness mm-hmm. gracious, like they're the the you know, like, so my neighborhood that I live in is probably 50% LDS and they are all constantly at each other's houses. They know each other. They're volleyball Tuesday nights, this, that. I mean, it's like this rich sense of local community because it's like a parish model so that you don't have to shop around for your favorite LDS. It's just like, well, that's where you go. And you don't ask the question, well, do I like the service? Like, that's not a question that comes up. Like, well, I like the service over there better. It's like, no, that's, that's my war. That's where I go. But it's the it's it's the communal sense of belonging that seems to be that powerful, powerful uh, draw to the to the LDS Church. And part of me is a little like, man, I I think I just wonder if the Evangelical Church had a. It will never happen. It can't happen. We're way too independent, and I don't know. It, it's uh, but what if? Like, what if we had that kind of thing to go along with? You know, the gospel and salvation and all these things. That, right, right. <laughs> all these theological truths, but. Um, yeah. I experienced it a little bit when I was in Scotland because Scotland is on that kind of parish model. So you do have, you know, people that they live together, they typically shop in the same area and they go to church together. Um, it is, but it's now, it's a little more of a post-Christian world. So it's a little different, but.
1: I And I think when, I, in the tipping point, he, Gladwell talks about John Wesley, when he started the Methodist movement, that he wasn't this fantastic orator or mm-hmm. preacher. What he was, was a master of small group. Really? So when he would move into a town or a city, he would never leave without setting up groups of people that they could socialize and operate in who had come to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when he left, they those groups would multiply in his absence. And again, in, in the book, New Power, it says, it's not a movement unless it moves without you. And so many of what we see, I think, in some of our megachurches is, is it a movement or is it like around this speaker? Because if it's not moving without the speaker, yeah. it's not a movement.
0: Yeah. 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 That's, man, yeah, that's, we're learning that the hard way these days. Let's, let's, right. talk, about your, let's talk about your book that's about to come out. Uh, it's Not Your Turn. Is the yeah. title of the book. Did you come up with that title?
1: I came up with that title. It's something I said to myself for years.
0: And uh, t- uh, I, I forgot to write down the subtitle. Um, what's what to
1: do while you wait for your breakthrough.
0: Okay. So give us the elevator pitch and then maybe we'll kind of go through various layers of it.
1: I'm going to keep it really short. Here's the elevator pitch. I have learned that who you are when it's not your turn is more important than who you will be when it is. Wow. That's the elevator pitch. Who we are. Everybody. Let's use podcasting because we're on a podcast. Everybody will turn the podcast mic on for thousands of listeners. Everybody gets on the stage when thousands of people are clapping for you and cheering for you. Who are the people that are willing to turn the mic on for five people
0: Hmm.
1: or stand Hmm. on the stage and say what they believe to be true in their heart for six people who are listening? Hmm. My friend, Justin Koo is a pretty large Christian YouTuber. And he said, when people ask him, I want to start a YouTube channel. What do I do? He says, be willing to create 100 pieces of content for less than 100 views. And if you aren't willing to do that, don't start a YouTube channel.
0: That's a great, I right. love that. That's great. I do too. Yeah. I've been
1: saying it ever since you said it last week. So I just really believe like God is looking for a generation of people who will show up because they feel called to it, not because of the affirmation that they're getting. And who I am, the decisions and the choices I make based on integrity, when nobody cares, when nobody is clapping for me, when, when, if I didn't show up, nobody would even notice. Hmm. I think those are actually the moments where God is like, well done. And now I can trust you with more.
0: Do you feel like you, you said you've learned, is this a part of your own journey where you felt like you were in that spot?
1: It felt like it, man. I, so I always wanted to be a professor and I was, if you know, the adjunct game, those who are in academia, you know, adjunct, I mean, I was adjunct to get like six different schools, couldn't get hired full time. And you guys, I never took a summer off. I went from, from my freshman year of college, 2005, all the way through when I graduated with my PhD, I never took a summer off. I poured myself into education I thought because I'm doing the right things and making the right choices it's just gonna open for me and it didn't and I couldn't get a job so poor uh, for my daughter's first birthday my car I was trying to buy um, all the stuff for her party and I, I bought all the ingredients for food and stuff and then I realized I forgot paper party plates and so I went back to the to the grocery store to get the party plates and my card was declined on two dollars and like 15 cents. And I just remember driving home with my husband in total silence, here I am, in a PhD program, adjuncting, feeling very important, right? Teaching college, molding and shaping young minds. And I don't have $2.50. And all of my education and the cashier just totally evaporated when she said, (laughs) ma'am, your card is declined. Right. And so at this exact same time, one of my best friends who I have been best friends with since third grade called me and she said, Heather, you're not going to believe it. And I was like, what? And she was like, I got hired by NASA. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> that I'm choking. Right. I'm like, I'm, that is so great. And I am so happy for you. And I was happy for her, but I was also sad for myself. Yeah. And so I just realized, Hey, these two things can coexist. I can be happy and joining your joy. By the way, that's how we build trust. We -hmm. build trust by joining in other people's joy. I can join in your joy and be happy for you while at the same time realizing, man, like, God, I thought, where's my testimony? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought you turned the mess into a message. Where's Mm -hmm. my message? So I kind of was stuck in that place for several years Mm -hmm. of just feeling like, I'm, I, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to clap for everybody else. And that's what I decided to do. And then things did change for me, but yeah. it was like a seven year process.
0: Yeah. That's so good. Gosh, I can resonate with that to some extent. Yeah. Um, I, I got some good breaks kind of early on, but it was still, I'm, well, I remember in my PhD program feeling like the stupidest person in the room, like the village idiot. Like, how did you, Same. how did I get in here? These guys are just like, you know, they've been speaking Latin since they're like 10 years old and doing this, you know. And here I am, I went to, you know, the master's seminary, which doesn't, no one outside that circle knows, you know, like what that is. I, th- I thought my professor, my, I had good professors, you know, and and good godly men, most of them. Um, but yeah, you go over it in, in like a real academic context, and they're yes. like, you went where? Like, what is that? They looked at my transcripts and they're they know, some of my classes, like the pastor's home and how to, help your wife to submit to you and stuff and it's like <laughs> like wait, you didn't at least go to like you know they know like fuller right gordon conwell and then harvard duke yale like wait where did you go like was it like full no no fuller no 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 <laughs> so I, I yeah i just felt like playing catch-up you know like gosh i always felt like and there's a, there's phd students that are like publishing you know a high you know peer-reviewed journal articles i'm like man what would that be like to actually have a journal article published you know so yeah that's um i love that just uh, so yeah er, early on it was actually john macarthur who said um and uh worry about the depth of your ministry and god will take care of the breadth of your ministry mm-hmm. um, and my audience knows you know I, I i'm not a massive follower of macarthur you know we would disagree probably on many things but that's you can you can yeah. love them or hate them and that that's just such a true statement. And I feel like that I learned that early on in seminary and that um gosh, it's so I I do feel I just wonder I I think every generation struggles with this. I just wonder if it's especially hard for a Gen Z generation when you can post a funny cat video get a million views or do a TikTok thing and it, things can just kind of go viral out of nowhere. So you're growing up in an environment where if you're 17 and don't have a million tiktok followers or something like that can be seen as abnormal but in what universe do 17 or 19 year olds should they expect to have like a massive platform for whatever but that that seems to be more the norm in that world right would, would you i mean do you teach college college students is that um
1: i i totally agree with you i think it's and this is the so generation Z is the first generation and this is from Barna they're the first generation that when you ask them like what do you what's the goal for your life 20 years from now 10 years from now where do you see yourself family doesn't even crack the top three so every yeah. even millennials every other generation used to say oh well I, I hope I'm married and yeah like I want to go to school and I want to be happy this generation only says I want to get my education and I hope I'm successful. Huh. And they're just not worried about family because everything that they see is that if I'm not successful, then I don't matter.
0: Is it also the generation that has the highest percentage of people who assume they're going to be famous when they grow up or something? I've, I thought I heard. That I
1: sometimes. feel like I've read that too. I don't want to, yeah, don't every, to study
0: or whatever, but <laughs>
1: and I, I feel like I just wrote something about this. So I should remember about the number, the percent. It's a high percentage. I'm not going to say all of them, but it was a high percentage of people that are waiting on their 15 minutes. I just wrote about this for something else.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. Where, where do you write for?
1: Well, you... I was writing about it for my podcast that's okay. going to come out in July, end of June.
0: And you write for Christianity Today too, right? Or, and...
1: Sometimes. I write for Newsweek. Um, I've written for the Barna Group. I've contributed for Christianity Today Okay. for Plow Quarterly
0: okay. Journal. Wow. Yeah. Do you like writing or speaking more or both?
1: What's so it? my whole life, I was... I, and this is where all of my angsty emotions came from. Because in third grade, I I've always just wanted to be a writer.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: That was my my dream was to be a best selling author. And looking back, I feel like that was a unique dream for like a nine year old. But I used to tell everybody, I don't want a famous face. I want a famous name. I yeah. want to be able to write books. You know, you grew yeah. up reading CS. Lewis and yeah. all these great Christian writers and I'm like, oh, I just want to be that yeah. and, and then it didn't happen for me. so it wasn't my turn and that's do, you, okay. do, you,
0: do you find I mean I've heard people saying that like writing traditional books is gonna just fall by the wayside, whatever. I think with the introduction of like ebooks, people thought print books would go out of style, but we've have not seen that happen. but do, do you and, do you feel like writing traditional books and reading traditional books will? Lesson or do you feel like these will always be here to stay Um, or is it hard to predict?
1: We know that in COVID, book sales went up. Yeah. So I'm a huge – and I think that this generation, even more so maybe than reading a physical book, will listen to an audible.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. So
1: I don't know that it's going to go away. I don't, I, but you know, I'm biased. (laughs) Obviously I love reading and I encourage all my students to be reading and they probably wouldn't say it to my face if they were like, this is stupid and boring. Yeah. So maybe I don't have a good pulse on that conversation.
0: Yeah. I just read a book recently that talked about, um, or maybe it was an online article. Oh, what was it? Something about how, uh, ah, it's on the tip of my tongue. No, it was a book I was reading. Oh, it was a it was uh, a uh, Neil Postman's amusing ourselves, amusing ourselves oh, okay, to death, okay, okay. where he said like like there's no replacement for uh, the benefit of actually of reading a print book versus watching something or even listening to something. Like it teaches that kind of linear kind of logical thinking. It helps sustain con- concentration the physicality of the book does like, there's so much wrapped up in the actual reading of a tangible book that is still the best way to kind of shape our minds and you retain a lot more and all these things. And I mean, he wrote that, what was it? 1985, I think. Um, And I just wonder like, yeah, it's, and even today, obviously, I mean, he was, he, he wrote that before social media and yeah, I just it just there's such a I, my point is I think there's such a need to make sure we discipline ourselves to read actual books and even ele- electronic books or audio books. I, I I is it true? I I think you still, I mean everybody's different, but I think you reta- you still retain less generally speaking. Or is that?
1: Yeah, you know? I just read a book about this about the internet um, and how the internet. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a big book, and the whole conversation is about how the internet has changed our brains. And I can't um, think of it right now. Um, yeah. But in that book, he talks about, yeah, what you're saying right now, which is that reading yeah. is this primal, really beautiful way to organize your thoughts and to yeah. create deep thinking and to create deep understanding. Yeah. Reading cannot be topped, And how, because of the internet, in the book it talks about um, our eyes actually mm-hmm. like, dart around pages now because yeah. of the scroll.
0: I notice myself. I try to and I don't do oh, this same. all the time. Oh my gosh. I, I try to read with the internet off and my phone away from me. I don't do it all the time, but because um, it's just so I'll check if my phone's there, I will grab it every five minutes.
1: But did you not like I used to be able to just sit down and read a book in a day? I can't it's very difficult for me to do that now. Harder, and I do think yeah. it's because of social media and how it's changed our brains. You like I'm gonna check my email. Yeah. Or or guess what? I have a little phone on my wrist. <laughs> and I watch, and it buzzes, and I'm like, "Oh, gotta yeah. check that right." So yeah. we're in this constant state of, "I'm so important." So many people are trying to get a hold of me. I don't know yeah. I have time. that I have time to sit down and read this book.
0: Yeah, I, I've, and yeah, I'm. I I do this probably less than I like like less than fifty percent of the time. But yeah, I, if I'm doing like, what well, uh, like deep work, if I'm doing writing or deep thinking, or if I'm really trying to engage and digest a chapter of a book, I have to. Yeah, shut down my computer, internet off, text off, even shut down my phone. Sometimes my wife doesn't love that all the time. She's like, (laughs) pick up your phone. (laughs) Um, I'm reading. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Meanwhile, you forgot to pick up the kids or something. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, it's just, it's, we have to be vigilant to remove distractions in such a distracted world. I'm I, another question. I, I I love the fact that you're an expert in communication because I have all these kind of communication ish questions that I, yeah, I, I um, I'm glad I have an expert on. Um, okay, so we live in a sound bite culture. Uh, mm. Tweets and posts and everything's short and snippy, and people read the news, they'll, they'll read the news headline without reading the actual article, and um, everything's very clickbaity, headliny. Right. Okay. So that's that's kind of that's kind of training us to not think deeply, to not actually engage. However, I I think deep down people are lo- longing for something more thoughtful, long form, and in depth. And my hope is that this seems to be this rise in long form podcasts. Mm. I th- think about you know the most pod- popular podcasters, Joe Rogan, right? Who who right. Will have a three and a half hour conversation with like a neuroscientists about whatever and then a three-hour conversation with a comedian buddy where they're just cutting up but but that kind of that should break all the rules don't ever do a three hour episode and yet he does that and I just wonder here's my hope is that this more long form podcast this rise in long form podcasts is showing that deep down people do want more thoughtfulness more like to, to get beyond the soundbite, you know, um, am I onto anything there? Is that a false hope or have you thought through kind of why podcasts have become so popular?
1: Well, I think, I think it's popular. I know for myself because I can play it while I'm driving into work. Right. So I can play it while I'm doing the dishes or so I'm able to take in information, which I think is important to this generation. We love to be educated on things, but while I'm also doing X, Y, and Z. Multitask. Yeah. Yeah. Which is that good? I mean, you know, you're setting me up that, <laughs> you know, all the research says there's no such thing as multitask. I actually really, um, where did I just, yeah, it, it, that, even that word multitask is a new, is that an, it's in the book contagious. I think, um, the word multitask like only has been ab- around for like 50 years. There's, there's just, it's not even actually possible.
0: Like you could only cool do one or thing self. or the other. You
1: can't, yeah, the human brain can only focus on one thing at a time.
0: What about driving, though? Because aren't there like...
1: Right, because it feels autopilot, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, I, I'm just there. How did I get here? I don't know.
0: Yeah, because I, I, I will... Uh, yeah, I'll listen to podcasts or um or I'll have this app called Voxer where I'll kind of like... It's like a walkie-talkie where I'll vox like a 10-minute thought to somebody else. And when they have time, they'll vox back. Oftentimes when I'm driving, that's when I will vox people. And I feel like I am deep in thought while I'm driving, which is scary because I'm like... Right. How many people did I run over, you know, on the way home, but, um, but okay. So be, so driving might be different, but you're saying like, if you're, yeah, if you're watching a movie and you're like tweeting somebody or something like, you're. well, kind you of, could
1: never think about that. Could you watch a movie and clean? No, but it is weird. There is something different for some reason with podcasts. I feel like I'm doing it. Huh. There, I'd a, have to see the stats on the retention rate Yeah. to know if we really are. Somebody needs to do this study. Somebody listening, please conduct the study. <laughs> I,
0: cause I, I, I listen to a, a, a decent amount of podcasts, but I feel like I don't, I don't retain. I feel like it's there somewhere. I get the general yeah. gist, but like I couldn't repeat anything. But in the moment, I feel like, oh, I'm tracking. Yes, yes, that's good. That stat, whatever. Then I shut it off, and ten minutes later, I'm like, I don't. I hardly remember what I listened to. Are you like that too? Is that that's not just yeah, me? Yeah,
1: absolutely. But I feel like it just makes it you know, it makes your drive go by so much better. Yeah. I, ha- I have a long commute to work. So I always listen to an audible book or a podcast on my drive into work because again, like my generation is obsessed with never wasting any time. Yeah. So I always have to be taking in some type of information.
0: So, so you're ge- wait, so your generation, you're, I'm
1: m- a millennial.
0: So that's, that's a millennial thing.
1: Yes, very much. So millennials are also, well, ours is just that we're more characteristic of passion, right? So Generation Z has kind of swung back to the baby boomers in the sense that they saw my generation get massive student loan debts on degrees like feminism and where are they going to get a job in that, right? Or women's issues, whatever. And so they're trying to be really cautious with the choices that they make and they really want to be successful. Millennials, my generation are like, either I'm going to make money doing this or I'll live in my van and I do it but I'm going to be happy.
0: Okay. And that's yeah.
1: how, like, right? Like, we just swing by. I feel passionate about this, and that's why I'm here.
0: Yeah. Which generation is the information junkie? Is that all of us today? I feel like there's, like, for Don't me. do you think? It seems like it. Like, I, I, I it sounds noble, too. Like, any wasted <laughs> sex. I'll be in the shower and I'll listen to a five minute right. clip. Like, just, hey, I got to get more information. But I just wonder, is there's got to be a Wait, unhealthy... What's your
1: Enneagram? Now I need to know.
0: I don't know. I'm I'm either a one, three, or a five. Um, you are
1: totally a three.
0: <laughs> oh wait, you're if, totally a, you're totally a three. I am a
1: three. Okay. No, you are a three too. Really? If you can't take a shower without having to better yourself, yeah.
0: that's a three. <laughs> what about so? Yeah. So a good friend of mine who's like an Instagram expert interviewed me on this podcast a year ago. Okay. and He says the what best did he way say to you
1: were.
0: He said you're without a doubt a one. I'm oh, like okay. And people that know me well say you're not a one. I can't stand ones, and you're, because <laughs> <laughs> I because I I love seeing things from other people's perspective. Like I love that, and they're like, that's not a one can't do that. But I do, right. I do have a justice side to me when I'm eager to do the right thing because it's the right thing, or say the right thing, or stand for something when everybody else thinks it's. Not the that's right very
1: one, that's yeah. very one,
0: and but yeah, if I, but I could sit in my basement and read all these books behind me because I, I could sit here and just think and absorb and learn and never go outside and just well, I, I, yeah, that's not true, but
1: but here's the question what's the
0: motivation yeah. for it?
1: So, for a three, I'm like that too. I have to, I read at least a book a month, i have to. But I have, since the Enneagram, I thought, oh, that's what makes me a good person. <laughs> and then I did the Enneagram. I said, oh, this is a weakness of mine <laughs> that I have to constantly try to achieve better or more for myself. Uh, yeah. And so I've I, now I try to pull myself back from that and say, Heather, you are enough in Christ. And it's okay if you don't write another book or read another book. Like God will love you no less. Now I'm trying to fully b- believe that, but it's very... and antithesis to my personality so i
0: i think i used okay this makes sense now i think i used to be a three i i think without a doubt i used to be a three
1: you're in recovery
0: yeah but because well, now i'm just tired like i don't <laughs> i don't i do not ever need to get on a stage and speak again i don't need to write a, another book like i don't need like ooh, i can get to whatever number like like The more books and expand my CV, or like I have zero desire or need for that. I think that's healthy, or it's just burnt out. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Right. I I would love to write a book if I feel like this needs to be written and I don't see anybody else saying this, this way or whatever. No, I
1: think that's healthy.
0: Yeah. That's
1: how you get to a healthy, I am working on that right now.
0: Okay. So that could be a three, just a healthy three, or it could be a one. Yes. Yeah. Or what about a five? For, for me, it's like I I just want to figure something out, out for myself, whether I publish my thoughts or not. I just want to know. Like he, I got all my arguments down. I, I've thought through it all. Um, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Somebody said the Enneagram is like
0: shades, right? So yeah. you might be
1: a blue three. I might be a blue three. And then there's pal blue and there's navy blue and there's dark really? blue. But you're still... And, and that was helpful for me to be like, okay, because there's certain things, like one of the things for threes is that you change based on the group you're with, and I don't resonate with that at all. Okay. I am very much comfortable being myself no matter what group I'm with. So <laughs> that part I reject. But threes also are great teachers because they tend to tell people, if we see something in somebody, I always tell you. I will always pull my student aside after class and say, oh my goodness, like that comment you made, I, I'm so proud of you. And I saw this in you. I love doing that. And threes also love connecting people. We yeah. love networking. So those things I really see okay. in myself.
0: Yeah. See some of that. Yeah. Some of that. Res- I feel like I, I, I often recognize when I see something in somebody else, oftentimes I forget to tell them or I'm like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> That probably goes with being burned out.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually, uh, last summer, uh, man, I, I really was like in a, in a pretty bad place, burned out. There was just so many things colliding and collapsing in and, and just layers of of just challenges. So my board sent me on a uh, three month sabbatical, and that that first time in, I mean, I started school at you know what eighteen college and didn't stop whether it's school teaching working since I you are no. a three
1: Preston do not fight it <laughs> just just sit down next to me at the three table that's the three
0: just keep, and I, I I taught summer school every year too like See? just more teaching more stuff you know like yeah. So, so threes probably get burnt out pretty quickly.
1: I I know I fa- especially co- you know what and COVID is horrible. I will say though there are some things that taught me that I don't know if I could have learned in another way. Yeah. And one of them was that I have to prioritize my family yeah. above anything else. And I my prayer. And I hope that I stand, somebody hold me accountable. I want to make sure that I never go back to the way I used to operate, which Mm. was if if I got called for a speaking engagement, I always took it. Mm. And now in this, after COVID, I've just been like, no, like, you can always find some other great person to speak. My kids have one mom and my yeah. primary responsibility is to my husband and to my children and yeah. whatever else happens after that from my wholeness of my family, I can fit in. And yeah. I, I don't ever want to go back. And COVID definitely had yeah. me reevaluate my entire life.
0: How, how many kids do you have? Three. How old? Nine,
1: eight, and five.
0: Oh, wow. So that's prime. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely need your around. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you speak quite a bit or or pre-COVID, like, do you get... A lot. I
1: get probably three calls a week. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so I used to, I would be gone. It was, this is embarrassing to even say out loud, but I would have been gone like every weekend if if you called me to come speak. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would have said, well, the Lord has called to my husband and my kids. Right. And now I've realized, no, the Lord's primary calling for me because of the choices I've made is to my family. Yeah. And that is my primary ministry and everything else can come out of the wholeness of where I am there.
0: Yeah. 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 I think I definitely used to be a three. I don't know if I am. Can you, can you change like that?
1: Because of the Enneagram, I feel like I've changed and it's because it pointed out to me that the things, literally all the things I thought were my strengths, I've realized from the Enneagram were my weaknesses. Yeah. And I've now really tried to be, I definitely, I don't know if you relate to this. I definitely, part of the core thing of threes is trying to achieve God's love. And I, yeah. oh, I look back on my faith journey and I'm like, yeah, that's, a, that is absolutely, I went, the reason I did so much is because I was trying to prove to God that I was worthy yeah. of his love. Okay. And now I've come to a place in like the last year where I'm, I just realized, oh, God loves me and yeah. it's not about what I achieve. Yeah. That, it, even saying that out loud is very difficult for my brain to accept. Huh. even though I know it's true.
0: Does your, your denominational, it's uh, your um, Seventh-day Adventist. So yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. Does that denomination, ha- does it lean more on like grace or works? Like if it was going to struggle in one area, is there, you know, each denomination kind of has its... Uh, <laughs> this
1: is the big, <laughs> this is the big conversation. And because I think millennial, young adult Adventists are, are just very, very different okay. than their parents. Like I, I will say this for me, C.S. Lewis says Christianity is this house and there's all these different rooms. And my Adventism is the room that raised me and the room that I grew up in. And especially, I'll say this for minorities, my grandma, my Nana was a single mom to 10 kids, black wow. in the inner city of Boston. Every single one of her kids are college educated. Oh that God. is absolutely because of the Adventist room. Adventism has a very high aptitude for education. You, Everybody who's Adventist, that's why we have so many hospitals. I think we're one of the largest hospitals. Yeah. Um, organizations in the nation and schools, parochial school systems in the nation of as far as evangelicals, but we are big into education and medical. And and so there's certain things that I feel like that's what I recognize from that room.
0: Okay.
1: Though I I hate to speak for all Adventists. I I do think that there were certain things in the room that caused me to believe I had to keep working in order for, and, and now lately I've been like, wait, like it is the cross. It is finished. (laughs) like it's finished. Yeah. Right? And I get to just be a daughter of God regardless of of what I achieve for him. And that is a beautiful thing that I'm so yeah. grateful that I that I've discovered. And I I hate to say, oh, it's because of my adventism, but sure. I, I mean, did that room shape me? Absolutely. Yeah. So probably for the wonderful things and the bad things.
0: So so especially if you're if you are a 3 and there is right. more of a hard work kind of society, whether it's a religious society or family society, culture or whatever. I mean, that's good. That's just going to feed off each other. Right.
1: I think so too. Yeah. And I mean, there's probably tons of Adventists that would say she's crazy that that wasn't my experience at all. And that's okay. <laughs> I don't have to speak for you.
0: I might be a one wing nine. Cause I, I, I think not, not to keep going back to my Enneagram. number. <laughs> no, I <laughs> I
1: mean, love you got, this you got my head
0: really spinning, you know, I'm,
1: I love the Enneagram.
0: You do? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I I actually need to take, like, pay for an actual test. So my wife keeps telling me because um, she's taking it. My oldest daughter's taking it. My kids are really into it. So, like, my oldest daughter's cl- like a clear four. Um, my wife is a seven. My second daughter's a seven. I think my third daughter's a five. And I resonate like me and her, like, we can sit with a book and a cup of coffee for a few hours by ourselves and we're totally fine. But th- I don't know if that's an introvert thing. Thing or, a, or an Enneagram thing. Because extrovert-introvert cuts across all numbers, right? Because I, I have become very introverted over the years. Um, Here's
1: what I need to know. What does your wife say that you are?
0: Honestly, my whole family, that's, they're all way into it. They can't figure me out. Really? I'm like, I'm all of them. I'm a 10. <laughs> and, and
1: I do have friends that say, I refuse to be labeled. And I have these pieces and all these different things. And I say, OK, fine.
0: But the, even that, that refusal to be labeled, I, I don't have, I, I'm fine. If, if I fit a number, I'm fine being late. Like I don't, I don't have like that kind of like stubborn resistance. Don't put me in a box, you know, like if I'm a five, I'm a five, I'm a, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. I, I need to, I got to take a test, figure it out.
1: And there's wings, you know, where yeah. you can lean into one of the numbers that you touch. And I am definitely a three wing four.
0: Is that where your creativity comes from? Yes, or? absolutely. Yeah.
1: And my dad's a four. My mom's a three. And you know, so here's the other thing about the Enneagram that I think is really fascinating. I used to think that I was super open-minded and just had all these, because <laughs> I have friends from like all these different religious faiths and Muslim and sexual orientation, all these different things. And I, and I, I love that. But then when they all did the Enneagram, I realized, oh, I keep making friends with the same t- numbers. Over and over and over and oh. over again. I'm actually not that open minded. I attract or I feel safe within certain numbers. And I and so that's blown my mind.
0: Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Are your students into the Enneagram? Is this like a, a millennial thing to Enneagram or is Gen Z into it?
1: I think it's like a Christian thing, right? It is. Yeah. It's like a big Christian cult culture thing where a bunch of my, I think they take it in their freshman orientation. Really? They do the test and then they have these personality questionnaires that they talk about with themselves of areas of weakness. Certain- Cause the Enneagram is the first one that really looks at what does this look like in relationship to God? And that's why it's been so helpful for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, well, uh, shoot. I was going to say something. Oh, um, do you have a, do you have a certain test you recommend? Like do you have, or.
1: I don't, I did whatever free one I Googled Enneagram test. I take it and it gave me three types. And the second I read the three, I knew it was me because I had to close my office door. I was that embarrassed. Really? I, when I saw the thing, I said, oh, my goodness. Like, it was things that I've never – I didn't even recognize until I read somebody else saying it. And I said, oh, this is very clearly a personal thing. I'm closing my door, and I'm going to take a moment.
0: So I, I, I took a few online tests, and I, I couldn't finish half of them because – and this might show my number. You tell me, but I'm like, I'd read, you know, um, when you walk into a room, do you want to A – Dominate the room? No. Do you shrivel up in the corner? Well, no. Like (laughs) they give me all these kind of binary, like none of these fit. Like so, I'm kind of like, I guess I'll pick this one's the closest of the three options, but that I wouldn't do. Like that's not me. So, but does that show that like is that the not wanting to be put in a box kind of thing, or I don't know? No, I think that
1: that's a great critique. The one I took definitely had some more polar opposites so i just picked what was closest but then it gives you the 3 and then i read the descriptions and i said okay i know that this sounds like yeah me
0: okay heather let's go back to your book and then we'll we'll <laughs> close us out here cuz we went on in like a 30 minute tangent yeah. <laughs> so your book it's not your turn so you um you gave us the gist you, you know you said that you have kind of in, in your own kind of trajectory and story you know uh, this is part of your journey um uh if somebody is in that place uh feeling like it is their turn and it's not like how how would you just <laughs> verbally kind of counsel them now and and I'm sure that you know what you're going to say is part of the book as well
1: yeah so i went to lunch one day with a friend of mine um who was a chaplain at princeton and she, she had a really thriving ministry that she had done there and I was telling her some of my frustration and she was like, you have to stop thinking that life is going to start when you get to this metaphorical there. Mm -hmm. She's like, Heather, like your life starts right here. And if you're anointed, you're anointed and your anointing doesn't be, she's like, your anointing begins the day you believe you have it. And so I, I, that I, I got goosebumps as she said it. And I walked back to my class. I was teaching a class with like five people. It was after lunch. All their heads were down on their desks. They, they weren't interested. And I was like, no. I'm anointed to be here and I'm going to teach this class as if this is the most important thing I will ever do in my entire life. And I did. And after class, this one girl came to my office and she said, I just want to thank you. I can't even remember what I said, but she said something you said gave me the answer that I've been praying for for the last six months about what I should do after graduation. And I I, I heard God very clearly when you said X, Y, and Z. And it was this moment she left and I just said, what if I had phoned it in? Like, what if I had done what I wanted to do when their heads are on the desk and was just like, you know what, we'll hit a few points guys. And then you can go since you don't want to be here. And the only reason I took it up a notch is because I believed I was supposed to be there. Right. So my counsel that I would give to everybody is, and this is very like millennial and Gen Z, right. But I do believe your life matters Mm -hmm. because God matters and he created you and he created you with a purpose. And so I think if we have, if we live life with purpose and intentionality, Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's not about how many people that impacts. One person is always enough. And if we really believe the gospel, my God, that has to be true. Yeah. We should be able to do it for one person. And so let's live and, and walk into the spaces that God has called us with intentionality and with purpose.
0: So a lot of it does have to do with kind of the, the numbers, like the platform, the size, the numbers. Like, do you think that's a main factor in this whole struggle that people have thinking like, how come I haven't had my turn? Meaning like, where's my influence or.
1: I think that's what a lot of people, but I I think turns can look like different things. Like I I have one of my best friends as I was writing this book for 10 years, we prayed for her to find a husband. Hmm. And so that was, the, that was her metaphorical turn. And she actually has said, I wish men would chase me down like jobs do. She, her success wasn't a problem for her. She had tons of job opportunities, but she was looking for a partner hmm. and it wasn't coming. And so that was the turn that we were preying on. And this might upset some people, I don't know. But I, I told her, let's buy a tie, okay? Let's buy a tie that one day your husband will wear at your wedding. And we're just going to believe it. And I just want you to hang it in your closet. When you get sad, we're going to pray like, Hey God, I believe that one day you're going to bring me somebody who's going to wear this tie. And this was literally price. She brought the tie. I think four years later, she is now in a relationship with somebody who I, I personally believe God has absolutely sent to her. He is a wonderful person mm. who I hope will be the person that wears that tie. If they've had these mm. conversations, but it's like, that took four years and it's like, we go through life and we think because it's not, I think this is social media too, because it's not happening instantly. Yeah. We think it's not happening. And it's, where do you see that in scripture? You show me. Yeah. Where's the Where's the instantaneous God that we think that we all deserve right now? Even Moses, right? Because we all saw the Ten Commandments. He shows up at the Red Sea in the movie and he raises his staff and the water parts immediately. And scripture says that's not what happens. Scripture says that he sends a great wind and it takes all night. What God could have done in a moment, he chooses to do in a process. Mm. We are concerned with the product. God is always concerned with our process. Mm. And you see that story over and over and over in Scripture. Yeah. And That's, it didn't change uh... the anointing. They were still anointed. Hmm. Joseph is still anointed in the pit and he's still anointed in the prison. And just as anointed as he is in the palace. It didn't change his calling, but it takes time.
0: That patience—that—that's something. Like, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That instantaneous society. Yeah, that things that happened a year ago seem like it was an eternity ago, and things that happened last week, and it just everything is so fast-paced in the moment. And you look back at Scripture, and you know they wandered the wilderness for forty <laughs> right. years, and then Moses, you know, another forty years. You know, like there's yes. such massive lengths of time—four hundred years between the Testaments you know, 700 years between God's promise to David and, you know, the son of David, Jesus being born. I mean, it's just these long stretches of time and how even, I mean, Romans talks about this, right. In several letters, just, just the, that patient endurance builds character and character builds hope. And like, I just, I just, that's going to be a struggle, not just on younger people, anybody now in this internet world, right. That, that necessary, long suffering, long endurance of whatever it is. Um, I just, it's, I don't, I don't even have a category for that. Like 20 right. years going, waiting right. or, you know, putting the hard work into something. or
1: And imagine like, uh, you know, Abraham, 25 years, right? Yeah. How long did it take for Abraham's hope to die? Year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. At what point does Abraham say, and actually I just found this the last time, I read scripture every year. The last time I went through scripture, I highlighted this because it says, At the same time that Abraham is praying for a son, all of the, it's like 300 and something people are born in his own house. So there is birth all around him while he waits on the promise that God has promised to give to him. What do you think he's experiencing and feeling? And of course, for the Christian, we would say, whatever God doesn't make new or come through on, on this earth will be made new in heaven. And that's the hope that we have. And That's is it weird. enough? Yeah. Is it enough to live? Does it I think it is it Francis Chan who says this like is it enough to live 80 horrible awful years on this earth? How like how long are you pissed about that in heaven? 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, 500 years. How long are you pissed? Yeah. And he's going to give us eternity to yeah. work through uh, everything that was horrible about this existence. And I just, I have to trust him and take him at his word on that.
0: That might be, that that that's a that's a theological theme that I'm sure people people have written on it, maybe are writing on it. But that just just that renewed that fresh perspective on biblical hope, you know, and just having that kind of future mindset. Not not you know in the past it was kind of like you're so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good or whatever. But right, like, right. I don't know when's the last time I've really meditated on that hope of eternity with God as the thing that kind of controls my day, controls my thinking, controls my, my desires, puts things into perspective. Like this really is a, well, James says this, right? I mean, your life is what? But a vapor, you know? And like, like having that kind of contrast between life and this earth and life in the new creation, like I, yeah, that's in our fast-paced world, man. I think we need more of that. So. Not easy, Heather. Thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw again. The book is "It's Not Your Turn" comes out June 29th. Um, I'm almost positive this. Those of you listening to this podcast, it's 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 before June 29th. I'm not. I haven't planned exactly when I'm going to release it. But Heather, thanks so much for your work. You're you're just such a delight to talk to. You, you too. <laughs> thanks for bantering around with me I with say. no real specific agenda. Um, Somebody
1: get me on Press and Sprinkles podcast, please. <laughs> this is what I scream in my
0: house. <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Heather. Uh, We'll see you next time. I'm sure I'll have you on again at some point.
1: All right, bye.